But Ruth is a wonderfully poetic and incredible uh, story that is one of those hidden treasures of the Old Testament. And I, I mentioned it in a few ways this morning. And, and just to, to recap where we left off, we talked about the fact that when we, <clears throat> when we left off in the book of Judges this morning, that Israel was at its darkest point in history. And there was really, just in terms of, of uh, national identity, there was no God-centeredness, there was no faith to be found. It was um, foreseen in the life of, of Jephthah, who who knew really the gods of Canaan uh, more than he knew the God of Israel, and yet was a judge over Israel. And then you have Samson, who, uh, like we said, was a very uh, promiscuous, violent, and arrogant uh, individual. And then, uh, literally, uh, at the end of Judges, you have the people of God involving themselves in human trafficking and, and just bloodlust, uh, waging tribal war on peaceful cities. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And they've... They've really uh, become the nations that God warned them they would become if they did not uh, stay holy as God called them to be holy. Remember, that was the whole purpose in Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, you shall be holy as I am holy, and God gave them the law to do that. And Moses expanded on that law, and Joshua retold that law uh, to them, called them to faithfulness. And yet, at the end of the book of Judges, we can't find any faithfulness anywhere in Israel. And yet, uh, the story of Ruth tells about faith being found in a pagan land, in the land of Moab. And that's what we want to look at uh, tonight. But the, the, whole, uh, the whole chronology of the Old Testament is very, very interesting to me because when we read these books, we think, well, this happened, and then that was the end of that book, and then this happened, and that's what that book tells about, and then when that book ends, then it, but we, we don't realize how much these events overlap, and so if you can just see some of this, uh, you've, got, um, you've got Israel experiencing some of these, uh, some of these uh, victories in Judges chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then these uh, break down, and, and they're all uh, in kind of chronological order. Deborah, Barak, uh, Gideon, and the Midianites, and then you insert Ruth there, and then Abimelech aspires uh, to be king, that's Gideon's son, and then plot against Abimelech, Abimelech is slain, Tola and Jair, and then you have the birth of Samuel, and you're still in Judges 10. You don't, you don't realize how Samuel lived through a period of the Judges, and really when we get into 1 Samuel next week, you're going to see Samuel is really the last judge in the sense that he's this, uh, he's a military ruler, yet he's a godly man, and he's really the consummation um, and the reversal of God's grace of the period of the judges to Israel. It's just Sam, God raising up Samuel, and it really even the way that God raised up Samuel, is another example of God being the ultimate promise keeper. Because did Israel deserve a Samuel? No, absolutely not. And yet God, in His faithfulness, did just that. And as you know from Judges this morning, there's 11 more chapters uh, to go on there in uh, the, the period of the Judges, and Samuel is born. Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. He died in Israel, stayed in Egypt around 400 years. From Exodus to Joshua was about 40 years. Then Joshua ruled 25 years. The period of Judges lasts about 410 years. And all in all, it's been about 600 years since God made the promise to Abraham. So you think six centuries has passed by, 
from the period of Abraham to the end of the book of Judges. And it's in this time frame that Israel goes from seeing the works of God to complaining about the works of God to forgetting the works of God. And that's the, the, definitely the track that we've been on. They've seen the works of God. They've complained about the works of God, about God not doing enough. And then they've, they have forgotten about the works of God in the book of Judges. But in the midst of all this, and, and how often is our, are our lives like this, we see all these things falling apart around us. And we ask that question that we've actually dealt with a lot over the last couple of months is, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you, God? <clears throat> and in the midst of the chaos of judges and the, the morality falling apart, the spirituality falling apart in Israel, God was not standing idly by. He was writing another story, a more intimate story. And that's been the entire point of this sermon series is that we would hear God speak to the story He is writing for us as we commit to meditate upon and understand His story. And I hope, I, we just want to emphasize that over and over because that's the way life is supposed to be. We, we're not given, uh, you know, the book of Ryan <laughs> so that I can open up the book and immediately find the next step for me. That's not the way it works. That doesn't increase my faith. So instead, what we've been called to do is, is to be immersed in, in study and understanding the character, character of God as put on display through His Word, through these stories uh, in His book. And as I identify with His story in obedience, He defines my story in action. I think it's so important for us to, to, to embrace and engage with that uh, path of discipleship, that path of life. As I immerse myself in his story and respond in obedience, then he responds to my obedience with definition and clarity. And what do we so often, what do we want, what do we cry out for from God? Definition and clarity. And so if you want definition and clarity in your life, or you know somebody who wants definition and clarity for their lives, then, then encourage them to immerse themselves in God's Word and, and, and to obey. And that's where the true test of, of whether or not somebody's faith is genuine kind of comes into play in the, in the beginning. Are they ready to, to immerse themselves in God's Word or are they just looking for quick and easy answers? Listen, God's not committed Himself to giving us quick and easy answers. He's committed to transforming us through His Word. And I pray that no matter how long we've been studying, as we learned this morning, we'll find find out new things, and as we find out new things, though, it's all geared towards our transformation. It's continuously an invitation to transformation. And so we begin in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, that in the days when the judges ruled, <laughs> in the days when the judges ruled, God was writing the story of Ruth, except surprisingly, this book is poorly named, because Ruth is not the main character of of the book of Ruth. In fact, I, you know, I, I've kind of joked about this, that God's the, I haven't joked about it, but I've said God's the, the main character of this book, you know. But, but I would even say this, God's rarely mentioned in the book of Ruth. You realize that? And the two books that are named after women in the Old Testament, these marvelous stories, the book of Ruth, the book of Esther, God's rarely mentioned in Ruth, and God's never mentioned in Esther. But why are those books there? Because God was marvelously at work in the lives of these women behind the scenes to preserve his people, to testify of his grace and his character, and to advance his plan. 
And so this book, I think it's called Ruth, because like I said, Ruth means friendship, and Ruth is an important character in the book. She displays incredible loyalty. But in the beginning of the book, in the middle of the book, and in the end of the book, this book is really going at it from Naomi's perspective. It's really more aptly named the book of Naomi. But for some reason, they didn't do that, and I haven't exactly figured out why. But while, while we jump into this story, we're going to see there's a lot to learn. And it's such a short story, we can just tell it. And so that's what I'm going to do. Let's just start in chapter 1. There was a famine in the land. And therefore, uh, a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they lived in Bethlehem, which is a familiar story for anybody who's, uh, who understands their biblical geography. Bethlehem is a very, a very impar- important part of God's story, uh, past, present, and future. And this is really one of the uh, first mentions of it. And so, uh, as this man and his wife, they are living in Bethlehem, they experience a famine in the land. Now you say, well, why? Why was there a famine in the land? Well, remember at the timeline, this was right around the time of Gideon. Now Gideon, in uh, Judges chapter 6, uh, is called by God. Remember, he's in a wine press, and he's a coward, right? He's scared. That's why he's hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh out uh, this grain. And, uh, and God calls him to be a deliverer from, for Israel from the who? Anybody remember? The Midianites. That's right, the Midianites. Now the Midianites are located... Um, they are located right around here, okay? And you don't see it on this map, but they're located right around here. Bethlehem is right here. And so the, right after God calls Gideon, he notes that one of the reasons that the people of Israel were crying out uh, for deliverance from the Midianites is because the Midianites would come in after uh, the harvest had come in Israel and they would devour Israel's harvest just like locusts would. And that's why Gideon was hiding his harvest in the wine press. And so when we read in the book of Ruth that there was a famine in the land, most commentators put these stories right side by side because they think, okay, well, Bethlehem's right here. Uh, the Midianites came in through here, and they would ravage the land, and that's why they're, they're in the midst of a famine. And so Ruth, I mean, uh, um, Naomi and Elimelech and their sons, Kilian and Malon, um, they decide to go from Bethlehem over down here to Moab. We don't know exactly where, but they're somewhere over here. Uh, Reuben is a tribe of Israel, and Moab here is, is Canaanite pagan territory. Okay, And so they get there, and, uh, and they're foreigners in this place, but they did what they could to find food, right? which is an understandable desire. And they get there, and it says in verse 3, Limelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Well, the sons begin to grow up, and they want to marry women, understandably. And the only women nearby are Moabite women, because they're in Moab. Well, we know that to be a big no-no in terms of what Joshua has called the people of Israel to, and yet at the same time, uh, there's not much selection, if you will. And I'm sure these... Two young men were very eager to get married, and so uh, Naomi doesn't really have a say in it, and so they get married. Uh, Killian gets married to a a lady named Orpah, and you say, well, that sounds a lot like Oprah. That's right, because that's her, Oprah's mom actually opened the Bible and found Orpah and just misspelled it, and that's how Oprah got her name. Did you know that? Uh, And so Orpah was married to Killian, 
And then uh, Ruth was married to, Mal- married to Malin. Well, that's verse 4. It says they lived there about 10 years. And even though the text doesn't say it, we know they were childless. Now, this was very unusual in this time. To be married 10 years, both of these sons, and not have children. We don't really know why. The text doesn't tell us why. But it is an interesting fact that's implied in the story. And then in verse 5, tragedy strikes again. Both Malin and Killian died. So just think of the devastation that this woman has encountered. Famine in her homeland. They escape to find food. They find food, but in the midst of food, they find incredible tragedy and heartbreak too. And now you've got this woman, Naomi, and these two, her two daughters-in-law, uh, Orpah and Ruth, and they're in Moab. She's an Israelite wid- widow. They're Moabite widows, and they're like, what do we do? And so at the end of, uh, really uh, from the middle and on throughout uh, the rest of, the, of chapter 1, there's four chapters here, so on throughout the rest of the chapter 1, uh, basically Naomi comes and uh, she tells uh, them that they can go, that they're free to go and be among their families and to go back specifically to their gods. And look at, look at uh, Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now think about it. She's a, once again, she's an Israelite widow, and she knows that going back to Israel after 10 years is going to be extremely tough. And then she's got these two daughters-in-law, which are an example of her, in one sense, their unfaithfulness to the covenant of God, to the laws of God. And so she knows it's going to be even tougher for them. And that's when she tells them, she says in verse 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may, that may become your husband? She's like, there's nothing but... I mean, since this woman's desperation, she's effectively saying to them, there's nothing but hopelessness with me. Have you ever been there? That's where she is. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing in my name. I have no hope. I'm old. I'm barren. I'm, I have no more. I, can, I don't have sons that you can, that you can, you can marry one day. There is nothing but hopeless, hopelessness for me. And, and the, the, in verse 14, it says, They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And then Orpah leaves. But the last part of verse 14, But Ruth clung to her. And then we, she tells her, she says, See, your sister-in-law, verse 15, has gone back to her people and her God's return. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here comes the wedding verses, right? This is in my wedding vows, or Mandy's wedding vows to me, the day we got married. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And it, but here's the key part. Your God, my God. You see, Naomi encouraged Ruth to go back to her gods. But Ruth says, you say there's only hopelessness with you. But I'm telling you that I, in, your, in your life, I've experienced the God of Israel 
I've heard of the God of Israel. And so you say there's nothing but hopelessness with you. I'm telling you that there's nothing but hopelessness back there with my false gods, with my family's false gods. And therefore, where you go, I'll go. Because I recognize that you are an Israelite and the blessing of God is on you and your people, even though all of this horrific stuff has been going on in Israel, I recognize the blessing of God is on you and on your people, and therefore I want your people to be my people, and I want your God to be my God. And even though you say there's hopelessness with you, I don't care. Look at verse 17, where if you think you're just going to die, then where you die, I'll die. How awesome is the faith of Ruth? If you want to define conversion, if you want to define repentance, if you want to define faith in the Old Testament, there it is. It is a, it is a total surrender and submission to the God of Israel. It's a total submission, and this is on the back of your sheet. Total submission and surrender to the God of Israel. Ruth knows that there is only hopelessness back with her gods, but there is hope. And you remember, what has Israel's purpose been this entire time? God's blessing was on Adam and Eve because they were created in His, in his image, and He charged them with the task of representing Him to all, uh, to all creation. And so the blessing of life and the blessing of closeness to God was meant to overflow from Him into the world. Sin cut that off. And so God establishes His rescue plan with Israel, and they have the special mark of His presence. And from that presence is meant to overflow life and blessing again into the world. But we look in the book of Judges, and there's no life, there's no blessing, there's no faith. And yet we look, and from a Moabite woman, there's life and there's faith because she's looked to the God of Israel just like Rahab did. And she has experienced that life and that blessing, and she's looking at an Israelite woman essentially saying, you think there's no life with you, I'm telling you that there is. And so they return to Israel. It's been ten years. People almost don't recognize Naomi because of the troubles that she's been through. And to accompany that, she renames herself Mara which means the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And in the midst of Naomi's hopelessness, imagine, I don't think Ruth was necessarily like bounding alongside her like the you know, exuberant, bubbly friend whose faith never falters. I don't, I don't think the, the Bible particularly paints a picture about Ruth like that, but I would say that Ruth displays an incredible loyalty and follows Naomi back to Bethlehem where people uh, recognize, they say, is this, is this Naomi? Is this, is this the one that went to Moab? And then at the end of chapter 1, I love how the, the Scripture does this. It puts these little sentences in here that, that give evidence of God's providence and a foreshadowing of what's to come because it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now that seems wonderfully irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you need to know that that's setting up the next chapter because the beginning of chapter 2 begins with them having a conversation about, hey, what are we going to eat for dinner, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of the standard conversation in any household, right? What are we going to eat tonight? And they ha they're having that conversation. What are we going to eat? And so this, this book displays this incredible symmetry because chapter 1 is tension and hope. Chapters 2... Uh, and three are this where this hope is renewed. This woman who has renamed herself bitter uh, because the Lord she thinks the Lord has dealt bitterly with her, which is not true, right? It's not true. 
she is actually brought to a place where her hope is renewed. And then chapter 4 brings tension and hope again. So it's tension and hope followed by chapters 2 and 3 where there's a conversation between Naomi and Ruth at the beginning and end of each chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then chapter 4 is tension and hope again. And so the, the Hebrew people were wonderful, wonderful storytellers. And so Naomi, they've returned to Bethlehem, and she sees a man that they didn't remember from before because she's been gone for a decade. And, the, and when she left, this man was a little boy, and his name is Boaz. And they need food, and Naomi tells Ruth to go and glean from the edges of Boaz's field because Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 says this, When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless all the work of your hands. Now the fact of, the, I mean, the facts of, of the rest of chapter 2 point to the fact that Boaz is an honorable man because he's, he's trying to abide by the law of God. So whereas we thought we, didn't have, we couldn't find faith in Israel in the time of the Judges because we've read the book of Judges, now we're seeing glimmers of hope in Boaz and glimmers of hope in even this Moabite woman, Ruth. And so she goes back, uh, Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, hey, met this guy, it's kind of nice, his name was Boaz. And Naomi remembers Boaz. She'd forgotten about him, and she declares that Boaz is this kinsman redeemer, which is a very, very interesting concept that we're not going to get, okay? That we're, we just, it's not going to make sense to us, but essentially he was an unmarried man, and because uh, Ruth had been married to Malan for a period of time, uh, and, and even though they were in Moab, uh, basically she is now eligible to be redeemed, to be, uh, to be bought back from her, her, her uh, uh, widowhood, or whatever you want to call it. And so uh, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer, and so he would be eligible to marry this widow and to give hope to the family. That's really the goal of it. And, and, and this was something we really couldn't talk about with the kids in the room, but, but the, the, and this is something the Lord's just been it's kind of blown my mind with over the last several days, but I mean, um, the fact that in the Old Testament that the, the symbol was circumcision, right? And the reason that that symbol was so special was because it was evidence of a miracle that God began to work in Abraham. And basically, just to be biblically honest, okay, um, every time they had a sexual encounter, God wanted them to be reminded of that miracle. Is that, is that, do we understand? We come on, on the same, same wavelength here. So the symbol of circumcision, which was a sign performed in the flesh, like Paul says, was a constant reminder to these men that, that just like victory comes from obeying the Lord, that children come from the Lord too. And that, that you can be childless for 10 years in Moab, but the Lord is going to give you children when He wants to give you children. And that's what the sign of circumcision was meant to point them back to. It was a, it was a constant reminder of the fact that children came from the Lord. Because Abraham was childless, he was old, couldn't have kids, and God gave him kids. And circumcision is a symbol of that. And so the fact of being a widow, and this whole idea of being a kinsman redeemer, is the fact that 
Ruth's a widow with no kids, and there's no hope for her. She's an outcast of society. Just push her to the margins and let it be done. But Boaz, knowing the law of God, being an honorable man, he engages her, and Naomi remembers there's hope. That's what the whole idea of a kinsman redeemer represents. There's hope. So this woman who has called herself bitter has now found hope. And Boaz is is a potential family redeemer, and so the chapter 2 ends with Naomi believing that there might still be hope for her family and for Ruth and for her line, so to speak. And so chapter 3 begins with Naomi giving her daughter-in-law counsel about how to engage Boaz. And once again, culturally, we're not going to understand this. This is like Sadie Hawkins, okay? Uh, Because what happens in this chapter is uh, Ruth uh, and Naomi are having a conversation, once again, like, like we said, and she says, you've been dressing like a widow, dress up, smell good, right? It's like getting ready for prom all over again, right? Just just put on your best stuff and, uh, and go and wait till he's finished eating and drinking and uncover his feet. Now, if you ever want a, a very interesting biblical practice that you, we just have no idea what that was all about, then that's verse 5, right? Uh, or, or verse, yeah, verse 4 of, of Ruth chapter 3. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Seems like a strange place, right? But that's what happens, because in this culture, uh, when a situation like this arose, then the woman would be the one to go and make herself available for the man. Now, this was not sexual at all. This was not immoral, inappropriate at all. This was totally virtuous, and there was a great deal of, of discretion and modesty that went about this. That's why she's at his feet. That's why she's going at night, is because this is not some kind of flamboyant, posted on Instagram kind of thing, you know? She's not taking a selfie with his feet like, hey, it's about to go down. It's not like that, right? I mean, that's not, it's so, so far removed from where we are today. But that's exactly what she does. And of course, he's startled because he feels his feet uncovered. And he wakes up and he say, <laughs> it's like, he's like, oh, there's a woman at my feet, right? Uh, and, um, and it says, uh, he says, who are you? In verse 9, chapter 3. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, once again, this is not sexual at all. There's no Song of Solomon connotations here. This is purely a, an, an idea of finding refuge. Think about that. Spreading the wings is just finding refuge. You're a redeemer. I'm a widow. There's, there's no hope for me. I'm on the margins of society. You can bring me hope again. Can I find refuge in you? And, and Boaz has already been impressed with Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. And now he is uh, impressed with her. And he, he goes into verse 12 and he says, Now it is true that I'm a redeemer. I'm, I'm available for this. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight in the, in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until 
the morning. So once again, nothing promiscuous, nothing inappropriate going on here. This was just the way that it worked out. And so she kind of lies down nearby him, and they sleep, and then he does what what any good Jewish man would do. They wake up in the morning, and he gives her 50 pounds of barley to take home, right? (laughs) It's like, here's... Here's, here's a gift. And so she hauls this huge sack of barley back to uh, the house, and the, con- and the, uh, the, um, the uh, chapter ends with Naomi and Ruth in verse 18. Uh, <laughs> verse 18, uh, having a little conversation again. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi is encouraging Ruth that, hey, he's noble. Trust him. And so... Chapter 4 begins, Boaz goes to take care of business and to settle the matter before the elders of the community. And this is the way he presents the case. He says, there is this man, there's this, uh, uh, this issue of Elimelech and Naomi and their kids, and, and, and uh, there's some land that Naomi had and, and it needs to be redeemed, and this man says, okay, well, I'll redeem the land. And then he says, well, there's... If you, if you redeem the land, there's a woman, too. Her name's Ruth. And I think there's some strategy in the way that he, he presents that. Because this is, once again, a love story. And Boaz has seen this, this woman who, even though she's a Moabite, even though she's a foreigner, he's greatly impressed by her loyalty, by her virtue. And so I think in if we could be just use our biblical imagination here, he wants to marry her and wants to go about it and it be a, something that's culturally smiled upon. And so he mentions that in the end and the man says, well, I can't do that. And the man says, well, then you do it. And Boaz says, okay, I will. And verse 7 now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. I wish it was that easy today, right? Uh, you know, you go to Rodney and Katie's office, we want a new deed, and here, here's a, here's a shoe. You know, I mean, it's, it'd be, it's a lot of signing, you know, I mean, it's, but uh, it's got to be done that way today. So, uh, so anyway, Boaz marries Ruth, and even though she spent 10 years childless, the Lord gives them a child. So you see the tension and hope in this chapter. The tension is... Will this other man get Ruth? Will he treat her like Boaz has treated her? And will there be this chemistry that's already been there? And the fact is, is that uh, the Lord's working behind the scenes through Boaz's language, and he's able to marry Ruth. And it says, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Notice the language there. Childless for ten years. We don't know why, but childless for ten years but the Lord gave her a son. And the woman said to Naomi, verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left who? You. So Ruth has not looked at this with selfish intentions at all. Who is she concerned about the whole time? Naomi. Wow. The Lord has redeemed you. He's not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And they say, because they said, may the, the name of the Lord be renowned, they named the child Obed, which means worshiper. Right? 
And the book ends with Naomi taking the child into her life with a restored hope. A beautiful story. What's the point, right? That's what we all ask. What's the point? Well, the immediate main point is to set the stage for King David, right? Because that's how the book ends. Look at verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, right? So Salmon's the one who married Rahab. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, who would be king over Israel. And so the book ends with this genealogy, noting that Obed was David's grandfather, which means that David's great-grandmother was a Moabite foreigner. But remember what we talked about doing this entire time, creating arcs from the Old Testament into the New Testament. We've got both Testaments, so we want to be looking for arcs. At the end of, it, at the end of this book, see if this sounds familiar. At the end of this book, we have individuals who, against all odds, have come through trials, and are now in Bethlehem holding a baby who is connected to the line of David, who is a worshiper of God that has restored hope to a family in a time of faithfulness. Sound familiar? Right? This points us not just to King David, but far beyond King David, one who would come from the line of David, and that is Jesus himself. This book ends with these individuals who against all odds have come through trials, ended up in Bethlehem holding a baby who is connected to the line of David, is a worshiper of God that restores hope to a family in a time of faithfulness. The book screams about Jesus, and that's probably why we think maybe Samuel, we don't know for sure, but we think Samuel is the one who recorded uh, this book. And it sets up the book of Samuel, and the book of Samuel has as one of, as one of its main characters, King David. Uh, and all of this is to be a connector between the book of Judges, where in the end it says... Everyone did was there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so Ruth says, but there's going to be a king. And it's not just David. It's Jesus. And when those who are of his line are transformed by him, then what will be right in their eyes will be the will of God. Because the fruit of the Spirit against those things, there is no law. You can't do wrong when you're walking in the Spirit. It's what, what Galatians chapter 5 says. And so when we have transformed hearts and we're walking in communion with Him, then, then it's the reversal of the book of Judges for us. But there's some secondary applications that we can include, and I think this is particularly relevant for us, if not to be challenging. But Consider, first of all, what we've seen from those who've suffered deeply in the Bible. We talk about suffering a lot, and it's not because I've got some kind of morbid infatuation with suffering. It's because suffering is life. I mean, suffering is part of life. It's, 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 it's in every area, and that's not to say that God is about inflicting us. You know, I don't want you to come away with that from this morning of seeing 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, and think that God's just always looking for ways to cause you pain. That's, that's not the case at all, but think about... Job, and then this story, Ruth, which is about, which is basically like Job from a female perspective. Remember, Job, God is not committed to answering all of our questions. He's committed to giving us Himself. That's what we saw in the book of Job, right? So, what do we see here? What's the balance here? Well, Naomi testifies to us that in the most hopeless situations of life, God is working behind the scenes to write His story. And your story will play a part in that story. 
in the most hopeless times of your life, Ruth testifies to us, the book of Ruth testifies to us that God is writing His story and He's writing your story to play a part in His story. You're not going to see it, but one thing you need is a Ruth. And one thing that you need to be is a Ruth. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean by that. Naomi was kind of lost in her, this consuming thought that the Lord was dealing bitterly with her. She was just consumed with this idea that, that there was no hope for her, that she was just going to go back and die a widow in Israel. But here she had Naomi saying, No, I love you. There's hope. I, I, I want to I be with you. I want to serve you. I want to I love you. I want to walk with you. I want to die where you die, if that's what it comes to. You need friends who, when you are in your darkest times, will take you by the hand and lead you to hope, even when you don't want to go. That's, that's one thing, that, one secondary application that we can get from this book. You need friends who, when you aren't answering the phone, drive to your house. You have those types of friends? That's a, that's, a, that's a serious question you need to ask yourself. Are you cultivating these types of relationships? To where somebody knows that they've got permission when you, when you try to drive yourself into isolation and cut yourself off from the world, that they're, they're incessantly texting you, and when you stopped responding, they're, they're calling you, and they're, they're, they're driving by your house, or they're driving by your work, or they're, do, they're doing something to engage you because they love you, and they want to remind you of the faithfulness of God. They want to remind you that life is found in Him. And guess what God has given us so that we know life is found with Him in Him? He's given us relationships. And life is supposed to just flow back and forth in those relationships. And so we need people like Ruth in our life, but we need to be Ruth in life as well, don't we? We don't just need to expect other people to be that for us, do we? That's not, that's not biblical relationships. It, we, we need to... We need to have people that we chase after, that we, we go to, and we, we can read their face when they're trying to hide something. We're the ones knocking on their door to say, hey, hey, God's faithful, I love you. How can we pray? What can I do? Let me cook you a meal. Let me, you know, what's your favorite candy? I mean, you know, we need people like that in our lives, and we need to be people like that. And that's why we have the church. That's one of the primary reasons we have the church is to cultivate relationships in this congregation through our Sunday school ministry and our small group ministry and the different ministries that we have here to, to develop those relationships, to have people that we love, that we like to... I mean, we've defined relationships as a church as just people we tolerate. I mean, if we're honest, that's kind of what we've settled for. That's not right. We need relationships like this, and I can't wait till we get to David and Jonathan, because this is going to freak some of you men out. When David looks at Jonathan and says, I long for your friendship and your companionship more than I love the love of a woman. That's some friendship, y'all. And that's going to make a lot of men uncomfortable. But guess what, men? We need those types of friends, too. Ladies, you got it in Ruth and Naomi. Men, we've got it coming for us and David and Jonathan, and it's going to make everybody feel uncomfortable. But that's okay. Because we're not a totally biblical people. The Bible needs to, it's going to challenge us, and we need these types of friendships, and that's one way it wants to challenge us and, and shape our church. But just one other application I'll mention briefly that I think is I think relevant to where we are, even still in 2018. 
<clears throat> I know a lot of people have reasons that they um, that they they they, or they have opinions and they have reasons for those opinions and convictions about interracial relationships. Is it right for a white person to date or marry a black person? Or is it right for a black person to marry a Hispanic person? Or is it right for races to to intermingle? And I, I'm well aware that even in our own congregation, we have many different convictions about this. And and so you know everyone is entitled to their own opinion because this is a secondary issue. But the fact is that we want to be a thoroughly biblical people, right? We want to have biblical convictions. I've heard people make the argument from Scripture that. Uh, races should not intermarry or date because of the command that God gave to Israel not to date and marry the Canaanites, right? And we saw that this morning, right? Those external influences have a way of wooing you away, and, and uh, those different cultures, they, they, they have a way of creating a syncretism that's unholy, right? And so, so Joshua says, don't marry their women. And yet we come to the book of Ruth. And what do we find? We find not only, not only uh, Naomi watching her two sons disobey the command that Joshua had given and marry two Moabite women, but then we, they die and we come back in. And now Boaz, who is a half-breed himself, is marrying a fully Moabite way. You've got, you, you, have, you have this counterbalance or, or counter-opinion to those who would say, well, it's wrong and yet, here you have in the book of Ruth, you have a testimony of just the fact that, well, God's not condemning it. In fact, God is blessing it. And so here's, here's where we settle on issues like this in the sense, of, in the sense of, of just calling something a biblical argument or a biblical conviction. It's not explicitly given to us that we are not to date or marry interracially because the fact is is that when we look at it from the creation fall redemption restoration standpoint how many races are there one now there's a lot of different ethnic groups where did that come from babel right after the fall so creation fall what comes next redemption so what's the most important thing about a person that your daughter or son would date or marry it's not their skin color. It's whether or not they follow Jesus. It's the most important thing. And like I said, we may have, we may have personal or, or opinions that contribute to us having certain convictions that we do. We need to hold those loosely because there's really no explicit biblical mandate. Right? Except... Do not be unyoked, or not, not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, right? That's, that's the only explicit command that we're given regarding marriage. It's not about skin color. And so, once again, there's a lot of Old Testament passages and verses that are kind of brought out of their context, and we kind of put those forward, and we want to be careful about doing that, because listen, there's some that we, that we really do need to pay careful attention to in that sense. You know, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. We're not saying, well, you can't rip that out of its context. I mean, that's obvious. So there's obviously, we've got to read our Bible carefully. And when it comes to that particular issue, maybe we can say that some of our convictions have been influenced more by culture than they have by Scripture. And so it's not up to me to tell you what to believe. Because remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm not your Pope. 
even though I look really cute in one of those hats, okay? I'm not. So it's up to you to study God's Word and to come to a biblical conviction. I'm just telling you what balance looks like, because that's, for some reason, that's what I've been called to be concerned with. But ultimately, let's settle on this, is the fact that God is portrayed and testified about in the book of Ruth that he's at work. He's at work in ways that we didn't see coming. And the way he's at work is going to have long-lasting implications, and he's called us to be a part of that work, and he's writing us into that story even when we've written ourselves out of it. What a beautiful story, and what an awesome God. (laughs) And so let's just end tonight by thanking him for being the God that writes us into his story, even when we've written ourselves out of it, and we'll be done tonight.